Juliet Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 174 of Dogcast Radio, which focuses on Graham Sims. Don't forget, you can find this and all our other shows on our website, www.dogcastradio.com. And we also have there a veritable feast of dog-related entertainment and information. Many of us have had our lives enhanced and enriched by a dog, and it can be surprising how simply having a dog in your life can change it. But when a stray dog came into Graham's Sims' life, she did so at a very low point for Graham, and nobody could have foreseen the highs and adventures she would lead him to. It's an incredible story, which took him from the world of commerce to being a shepherd, putting on displays with his dogs, becoming a vicar and an author. See, I told you it was incredible. In this interview, Graham talks about many things, including why he thinks he's been so well received in Italy, and why you can't approach training thinking all dogs are the same. He tells his own story best, though, so I'll leave it to him. I'm talking today to Graham Sims. Hi, Graham. Hello, hello. Hi. Now, your, the, the story of sort of how you came to work with dogs is amazing. And when we have talked about this in depth, and I will put the, the link on to that interview. But can you just remind us how dogs came into your life and sort of how they turned it on its head in a good way? Yes. I was working in the advertising industry, um, thick carpet, um, executive office, all expenses paid, thinking about the success of advertising, but at the same time sort of um, motivating animals that were in commercials. So if they wanted a tiger to run towards something, I was the one that would do it, or a dog or a horse or whatever. And one night uh, when I was coming to the end of my career, um, 32,633 pounds had disappeared from my company's account and miraculously appeared on another company's account at exactly the same time. Uh, which uh, smacked of some sort of um, dishonesty. So I told them, resigned. So I was on my way out. And I decided I'd go to the pub one more time while I could afford it. And I was opening the door at about 10 o'clock at night in a little village in Hertfordshire to cross the road to go to the pub. And I saw a black and white dog in the middle of the road. And one way, I could hear a car coming. And there's a chicane there, so it's quite dangerous. And the other way, I could see a truck coming towards me, big square truck with the lights on, man sitting there, a German shepherd by his side, both looked as alarmed as each other. And I sort of thought, what shall I do? Um, if I call as you get killed, mm. if I run across and take her to the other side, we'll both get killed. So I went halfway across the road and called her, and she came. Uh, and then the immediate question is, what do you call a dog you don't know? Yeah. And we called her Annie. And mm. um, when I got back inside, I said to my wife, I just found this dog on the road. And she said, ah, we'll call her Annie, which was quite surprising. Yeah, yeah. And the, instead of going to work in the normal way on the train at half past seven and going up to Liverpool Street and then through London and all the rest of it and coming back very late at night, I spent days and days and days in the fields with Annie, just watching her. Mm. And it was one of those moments where you realize you need help me i've just left a job i don't have a job i don't have a career i don't have any prospects she needs a friend mm. 
So we came together, and I think because of that situation, we both looked at each other much more carefully. I don't think I've ever looked at a dog so carefully before, and I've never tried to understand a dog as deeply uh, before. And she changed my life um, to such an extent that uh, I even took, you know, orders, did a, a degree in theology and became an unpaid vicar. So that was a thank you for finding yeah. a dog at the right stage in my life, right stage in hers, and changing both of our lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. And as you say, it changed her life and it changed your life and then set you on a completely different path. And I can't think of many more, well, many more legal <laughs> um, careers huh. that sort of that would be more different from being a, a vicar. Good grief. Yes, the Italians laugh about that. They say they have the same word for a shepherd and the same word for a vicar, okay. uh, pastor. Yeah. Um, so they always laugh and they always think it's natural. Yeah. Because yeah. you should be a shepherd and a vicar. Mm. Very strange. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so, I mean, you've mentioned Italy. Um, you, you've written several books and we've, we've discussed some of your books um, and always you always write very um, conversationally and it's a very easy but informative read I, I do like your books um, and you're, it's one of your books or, or more of your books that have sort of made you a household name in Italy haven't they? Yes um, yeah a big surprise mm. um, especially as the English paid a fortune for it the Italians didn't and I thought, oh, this is just a small extension to something that's not working very well. Um, until I saw my face all over every bookshop and newspapers and went on television there and so forth, then you realize, oh, it's not quite the same thing. No, no. Wow. So one, one's, one's been a, an outright bestseller, probably made about a million and a bit for the publishers. Mm. And not for me, uh, I used to it. <laughs> and uh, another one's coming up hard on his heels, and another one's following that. So they're, 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 uh, he said to me when I started writing, this is a literary agent, a novelist is in a sprint. Um, non-fiction is a marathon. Mm. It'll happen slowly. Yeah. Build and build very, very slowly. But one will go on for six weeks, uh, fiction, yeah, in its peak. And the other one will go on for eight years, ten years, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's been proved right, hasn't he? Yes, he has. He has. I wouldn't tell him, though, of course. <laughs> yes, he has. <laughs> It'll go to his head. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, he's already got a big one anyway, so... And I don't use him anymore, so I can say what I like. No, so I haven't named him. It's OK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm always amazed when... We, I haven't been to Italy, but when we go to France, I'm always surprised at the places that dogs are allowed. And, for example, we've stopped at services on the motorway and we've gone into the cafe and sat down and then I've, I've noticed there's a dog under that table. And it's, I mean, I notice dogs. I don't walk into a room and, and then finally go, oh, there's a dog over there. I spot the dogs before I spot the people kind of thing. But I do find that on the French motorways, it does take me a while because the dogs are so blooming well-behaved. They're just lying down under a table and they're tucked away and they don't... They're not sort of bounding around and attracting attention. And no, it does no. seem to me that the Europeans, the, the continental Europeans, have, have a, quite a different and quite a disciplined attitude in some ways. And they've got it sorted more than the British have, I think. It's a 
whole different um, ball game. Uh, I remember this same literary agent that I mentioned before, who was very, very good, um, getting a huge sum in England and uh, really selling a book that stood no chance at all. And then later on, when it went to Italy and became a bestseller, he said, this is mysterious. And I must admit, at the time, I thought so too. But when you look into it, it's not mysterious at all. It's absolutely natural. Italians are light years ahead of us. They've started their journey towards understanding the dog. Mm. We haven't even got on the train yet. Yes. There's a huge difference. Um, they're more polarized. There's probably more extreme cruelty. Um, dogs left on the road, run over, just treated with absolute callousness. Mm. But the other side of that story is an extreme kindness that comes from knowledge. Uh, if you want to be a dog trainer here, you go to a village hall and you put a little card in a window of all the shops you see and so you say dog training. Yes, yeah. Uh, if you want to do it in Italy, you go through three years of in intensive training with about three written exams. Mm. And if you pass, then you're a dog trainer and you're blessed by a government body to be a dog trainer. So mm. you do know what you're talking about. Um, some dog trainers say, oh, well, I've done my training, I know it all. But I've got one friend there who has now done something like nine disciplines and is still studying. He must be, I'm guessing his age, 52, something like that. Mm. And he'll probably study for the rest of his life in order to understand. And you see then huge knowledge. You were talking about dogs in uh, service stations in France. Mm. Um, last time I was in Pancalieri, uh, which is near Torino, doing a sheepdog course, hmm. um, I went to the restaurant with the students and at a table next to us, there, a very, very long table um, under a sort of a lovely awning because it was very, very hot. It was 36 degrees, I think. Wow. They had lots of damp dogs, maybe 20, and lots of damp people, hmm. all looking very cool, relaxed and happy. And I got to talk to them. They'd just come back from the swimming pool that the, uh, my friend whose school um, I'm taking the sheepdog course at, hmm. has built a huge swimming pool just for dogs. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Um, so it's used for therapy. It's used for comfort on a very, very hot day. All of the people go to the swimming pool with their dogs. They all jump in. Dogs leap in, and they all play with their balls and their kongs and their sticks and whatever else. And it's a full-size swimming pool, and it's filtered, and it's as spotless as the best swimming pool you'll see in this country. Yeah, yeah. So, amazing. small surprise the dogs are laying under the ta table in this instance, you know, so calmly they've had a wonderful day. Yeah, yeah. Um, to go to a restaurant isn't an exception. It's the norm. Yeah. Um, and we're very, very strange in this country. Um, I think we still think there's a thing called a generic dog. Yes. Yes, yeah. You know, and there isn't. No. No, they're all different. Aren't they? I always think when you when you get a new, a new dog, whether it's you know whether you buy or adopt, every dog takes you on a different journey. And sometimes the trick is to be brave enough to go on that journey because it's not always the journey you signed up for, is it? You know, I've never thought of that before. I've never thought about. I'm going to write that in the next book. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't a journey you signed up for. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Um, Rescue dogs in particular, if you find one on the road or whatever, 
you're swayed by love, emotion, pity, etc. on the first day, and then you realize you're on this journey that you talk about that you didn't consciously sign up for, yeah. but you've got it. You've yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah, and it's the, uh, it's the bravery and the love for the dog that sort of uh, keeps you going, doesn't it? But yeah. Yes. In the next book, look out for that sentence. It'll be just as you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind pinching a good story. Okie doke. I'd like, I'd like a signed copy, well, please. You with okay. I will credit you with that. I won't pretend it's my idea. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. No, I've done that scrupulously. If somebody said something that uh, taught me something, hmm. I've always credited them. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, if I don't like them, I say rude things. I never say who they are. <laughs> well, I've mentioned you several times because you'd said something to me um, I, a while ago when when we were with you, we, we'd come to, you know, where you, you were then. And um, you said the secret of good dog training is just to love the dog so much it can't resist you. And yeah. it's, it's not something I've heard other people say. But yes, I think that's absolutely spot on. If that's at the heart of your dog training, you're going to succeed, aren't you? I really like that. And I've, I've mentioned that several times and I always say it was you that said it. <laughs> Well, I've got a friend called Angelo Vira who runs a huge organization in Italy called Think Dog. Mm. And he's a very thoughtful and good trainer because he's never said, it's a dog. He's always said, this is a being and it's an individual. Mm. And he wrote a critique about me a little while ago. Luckily, he likes me, so it's all right. <laughs> and he said... Um, there's too much reliance on technical ability in Italy at the moment. Hmm. What you need is heart. And then he said that I had it. Um, I don't like jargon at all. And, I, and I'm always wary when somebody says, my theory is. Hmm. You know, um, hands on on, or, on nothing. I mean, that's a bit of a purist view, but I believe that. Hands on or nothing. Mm. We always look for qualifications now, and, and qualifications are important. And as we've said, you know, particularly as you've said in Italy, if it's um, if it's got authority behind it and it's the right qualification, great. But you do need that hands-on, that experience, don't you, to ground it in? Yes, you do. Um, the Shiba course we're doing now, I think, has from memory uh, two three-day weekends on theory, and then the other seven are practice, 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 mm. Mm. with a written examination at the end and a practical demonstration of your progress. Mm. Um, I so. But I, I, I think I believe the way I do because farmers speak to you in age-old folklore terms. A white dog doesn't work sheep, that's one. Mm. Look for this, look for that, look for the other. And I found them to be true. They're, they're absolutely true. Yeah. These are usually old boys who've been working with dogs and sheep, you know, for a lifetime. Well, probably since they were about six or seven years old. So they know the they know the subject. So I've got huge faith in um, practical ability. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. Whenever I go to Italy, they somebody said to me they only come to see the writer, uh, and I have noticed that. Mm. But I notice after one hour. The first dog you start working with, they're looking at you, and the expressions say, this man can write about it, but does he really know what he's talking about? Yeah, yeah. You, you can always sense that, that feeling. Yeah. So I always pick a, a dog that I know is going to do what I want. I always start with a border collie. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know your border collies, don't you? You you can read them and you know them. And uh... yes, but that's another problem um, because I've had something like twenty border collies and worked with them for I don't know twenty twenty five years, something like that. I began to think that all dogs were like border collies. Well, they're not. No. Border collies sixty percent more intelligent than any of the others, and it's on the the edge of madness. Yes. Unless you can distract that madness into work, and then it's wonderful. I, I remember somebody saying, an old shepherd saying, make sure you pick the naughtiest. Hmm. Um, and after that, I always did. I always picked the naughtiest. And the naughtiest usually became the best. Um, what is it they say? You can take the madness out, but you can't put the enthusiasm in. Yes. Um, but when, when we had some... Uh, we had... Uh, two Springer Spaniels. Bonnie died about a month ago. and She was about seven years old, female. My theory was, I found her on a road, by the way, just wandering around, totally lost. My theory was an old lady had owned her um, because she was very well fed, but her fur was matted and her claws were too long. And she was neglected in many ways, but overly looked after in others. And my vet, who probably had much more factual evidence to go on than mine, said, no, she was in a puppy farm as a breeding dog, and they threw her out when she was too old to be reliably a mother. And she didn't show any Springer Spaniel um, characteristics because she'd been away from people, living with other dogs, and rearing puppies. But when we got the second Springer Spaniel wag, I had to relearn dog training uh, all over again. He, we didn't know too much about him except um, he was a gun dog in the north of England hmm. on a big estate. Um, and because he is written down as being sold as part of the assets, I think I can assume that he was a very good gun dog because if you're assets, you're worth something. So. Yeah must be able to do what you're doing. We got him, and I ought to say right in the beginning of the story that I'm anti-gun and all that goes with it. Mm. But at the same time, I don't see why my dog should share my philosophy. You were talking about your cats a little while ago, how they were wonderful hunters. Yeah. We, we don't jump on mice and kill them, but you can't stop a cat doing it. It's Absolutely. in its nature. Yes. Uh, yeah. so you have to find a way of getting around that. The first time we went out with Wag um, and my daughter's border collies, um, we let them all off the lead. Um, the border collies were whistled. And they came back. I can get back quicker than you can. Yes, yeah. Wag jumped in the canal, swam across the canal, ran through a herd of sheep, a flock of sheep. Dreadful thing to do. Farmers mm. sheep and such things. Yeah. And disappeared. And they ignored everything. Mm. Just ignored everything. It was like a suddenly I had a mad dog mm. instead of a border collie. First of all, I thought he was naughty, and then I started to do serious research. I went to medical detection dogs to see what made a sniffer dog, and then to the airport people who trained dogs for airports and banking centers and football matches, the Olympic Games, and so forth, wherever a terrorist might suddenly appear, and started to see that this is a dog motivated by scent. Mm. Um, the Border Collie says is a target dog. 
I know I must reach that target. And even if I smell the most attractive thing in the world en route, I will not change my direction. This is where I'm going. That's it. <laughs> the Springer Spaniel is the opposite. Yes, I know you want me to go there, but I have important work to do before I get there. Yes. Yeah. By which time he may have forgotten he's going there, or indeed if he's coming back to you. <laughs> um, and the first thing I worked on was to try to stop him jumping in the canal, not by depriving him of something he'd been doing all his life, but by trying to do it in such a way as I could direct him to jump into the water I wanted him to jump into at the time I wanted him to jump into it. Yeah. Uh, and then watched him to see if his enjoyment lessened, because it wasn't through choice but through command. And his, uh, his joy increased. Mm. Uh, and I noticed that a lead was no form of restraint with him at all. But a dummy, a canvas dummy used for retrieving practice, was better than a lead. Mm. Um, so it took two years, I'd say, to learn the difference between Springer Spaniel and a Border Collie. It's probably obvious to somebody who knows both. But when we have a new dog, we usually know nothing yes. at all mm. about it. And it took a long, long, long time. Now... I'm closer to that, to Wag, than I think I've ever been to any dog in my life. Mm. Because unlike a Border Collie, he's not a fanatic. <laughs> and he has a sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> you know, and sometimes he does it wrong just to make me cross. <laughs> uh, um, I remember a little while ago, I threw it into the worst thicket I've ever seen in my life. Mm. I said to him, I'm sorry, Wag, I think we'll have to get a new dummy, but I'll try and get it back. So I stomped through brambles for an hour, maybe. And he watched me, just sat there watching me. And then I said, no, sorry, can't get it. Started to walk away, popped his head in, pulled the dummy out, brought it back to me. <laughs> smiling, I swear, smiling. Yes. Uh, and another time, I, I blew the whistle to say, come back. And, and he was away for four hours. Mm. Um, I went to see the gamekeeper, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm blowing twice to come back, like that. Yeah. He said, no, that's the signal for stay away. Oh. So, so you know, it's, you, you think, I was thinking to myself, yes, I know about dogs, I know about dogs, I know about dogs, and I've got a dog and I know nothing <laughs> at all about it. And that's taken me down another route. So now I'm interested in what motivates a particular dog and why. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. We can, we can generalise and we can say, you know, gun dogs. And I, mean, I do think that with Border Collies, more than any other breed, um, you can sort of generalise. I don't know them as well as you do, but they do seem to sort of all have that quite serious mindset of, I want to work, what can I do next? Yes. Tell me what to do next. Whereas, yeah. with, with, like with, with gun dogs, some of them have that strong working strain. Not as strong as a Border Collie, I wouldn't think. But, I mean, my buddy, nobody has told Buddy, who's a, a Labrador, that he should have this work ethic and that he, you know, his ancestors would have had this work ethic because he just wants to meet people, have a fuss, lie on his back, have a tummy rub, you know, and he, he doesn't have much work ethic. So he's different from sort of, you know, other gun dogs. And I would imagine that there is that variety amongst gun dogs as a whole. But what did surprise me with Buddy, and I've talked about this before, I thought he was entirely food motivated. Then we went to do some agility and... The guy doing the agility, Lee Gibson, who's a well-known um, agility 
person and he lectures and, and goes and does courses. Um, and he said, um, have you bought a tug toy? And it, I, I knew nothing, you know, about agility. And I went, no, I've got some treats. And he went, don't worry, I'll use the lead and I'll get him to tug the lead. And I was sort of, uh, Lee, I mean, Lee's a lot younger than me anyway. And I sort of st- stood back and thought, go on then, sunshine, see how well you can do this. And he did it. And he got yeah. sort of round the course and Bud's, you know, grabbing the lead and pulling it. And my goodness, I suddenly saw, and I admitted to Lee afterwards, and I said, you got it absolutely right there, that Buddy was motivated by something I would never have thought of, would never have tried with him. But he loved the tug toy. So yeah. we need to, to really try and understand what our dogs understand, what, sorry, what our dogs want to do. And yeah. sometimes that's not just one particular thing, is it? No, um... I've got a friend called Graziano Pinney who has a big agility club in Emilia Romana and um, had a little puppy. He's got two dogs, Romeo and Juliet, and Juliet is a, a little puppy. Hmm. And I watched him training her for agility and saw his evidence of lateral thinking, consideration of knowing what he was doing. And it's always impressive, isn't it, when you see somebody do that. Yes. So well. So he was making the sort of progress you'd expect in maybe a month, mm. in about 10 minutes. Wow. By just motivating it, yes. like the man with the tug toy, in exactly the right way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when you know it, it's easy. But of course, the journey to getting to the knowing stage can yes. be tortuous. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I know you spend a lot of time in Italy, um, and I, th- I think you got involved with rescue there as well, didn't you, Graham? Yes, I did. There was a, a big a refuge, they call it a refuge, hmm. um, at R- Robigo, and um, they really deal with all sorts of dogs, and the place is always packed and full of dogs. I didn't do hands-on there, I did, uh, because I had a very good lady doing it, uh, did not leave me. I did um, attracting crowds, Hmm. I guess that's my job. Um, So I'd go to open days and uh, special days and fundraising days and dinners and uh, and you name it. Um, And they would stand more chance of selling more tickets if they thought this writer was going. Hmm. Sorry, I tried to put that as modestly as I can. That's... um, (laughs) That's the way it is, I think. So more yeah, people came yeah. because this writer chap was going. Um, so, yes, but involved in all sorts of things, really. Um, right when you say rescue, too, I first thought of mountain rescue. I've done some mountain rescue. Hmm. Um, and uh, the sort of rescue dogs who are going to rescue people from cities that have been destroyed by earthquake, for instance. Um, sniffer dogs, essentially who are going to find people who are still living and people who are dead mm. in an earthquake situation. We, I guess living in this country, we, an earthquake is something we never think about, but yeah. um, in lots of places in Italy, earthquakes are quite common. So I've done that sort of rescue. I've, I've seen uh, Newfoundlands doing water rescue. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm. But... The surprises I've had there are, well, uh, recently we went to a, a place up in the mountains and did uh, a seminar there, and there were a mixture of dogs. And we used a, something called a long game, which is essentially a circle made of posts and tape 
where you can discover what the motivational force is. Um, and each pole of the circle um, is hollow. So for some dogs, you put a little treat down there hmm. to see if they can spot which one. And others, you use it for combine away, as you would do in a sheepdog, or for running dogs or target dogs. You can vary the, the way you approach it and discover fairly quickly what motivates a particular dog. Hmm. But to my great surprise, a lady had two um, chihuahuas, hmm. um, Filippo and Ambrosio. <laughs> and I remember thinking, they came on late in the afternoon, but I was thinking, what on earth am I going to do with chihuahuas? <laughs> what motivates them? But funnily enough, they were amongst the best scent scenting dogs I've ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. Absolutely astounding. They found the tiny fractions of food wherever we hid it in seconds. Mm. Uh, and we did it rather like the airport authorities do it. Um, loaded them up with rubber gloves, you know, made sure the dog was out of the room, uh, and then brought them in. So they had no kind of clues about where they were, but they found them immediately. There was a yellow Labrador there called Jack, Golden Labrador, mm. and he was wonderful, but you would expect a Labrador to be yes. wonderful. Yeah. Um, but a Chihuahua, no. But then here's another strange thing. Mm. And when I was doing this study about scent receptors, um, I noticed that there are 220 million scent receptors. Every dog has that. Bloodhound has 330, maybe. And they're able to, through seven sniffs, to take the scent of something into a, an enclosed chamber and almost distill the essence of it so they are sure. Unlike us, we have 50 million scent receptors, but every time we breathe out, we blow the scent away as well. Whereas they can recirculate it. So we would say, ah, I smell chili con carne for tea. And the average dog could say, yes, and I'll name every one of the ingredients for you. <laughs> um, they can actually separate them. Um, a chihuahua's got 220 million scent receptors. I hadn't thought about this at the time. And a border collie has. And that really got me into another avenue of interest. The Border Collie makes a conscious decision to run to the target. He must often, he, she, run past something that's absolutely tantalizing in a um, scent sense. Yeah. But they ignore it mm. because they're going to the target. And the gun dog says, well, sorry, that's your target. It's not mine. And he meanders both towards it and back and often forgets the target is a target. <laughs> yes. um, Probably because you decided it was a target and he decided it was worthless. Mm. Um, so it seems to go, as you said, um, in terms of breed. Yes, we expect a gun dog to do all of that, a retriever or a spaniel, any of those, Labrador. But you don't expect a chihuahua no. to do that. So now I've started looking in expected places, saying, yes, well, this is a spaniel, so it's highly likely that. But with dogs who are mysterious, I've given them the option of doing three or four activities. And the one they choose with enthusiasm usually indicates the thing that motivates them. Yeah. So it, it's, it is mysterious. Mm. It's mysterious. Um, 
you'd think that every dog with 220 million scent receptors would have the same motivational drive to smell everything in sight. But yeah. no, yeah. no. So the border collie says, thank you very much, but no, I've got work to do. Yes, <laughs> yes. They, I, I, and I, I noticed too, I take them out together. Hmm. So because my daughter lives with us uh, and the family, live, we live together. Um, I take two border collies and a Springer Spaniel and try and work them both. Um, Springer Spaniels, a Springer Spaniel on bringing the dummy back mm. and finding it. Um, and the border collies, in the time he's taking to run to the target, doing come by away, lie down, walk on, count, etc., etc. Mm. It's very interesting to see how they are so different, so yeah. very different. Uh, and a man last week, I was walking down the canal bank. We live next to the Brecon Canal, and it runs, I think, 35 miles to uh, the middle of the Brecon Beacons. Hmm. And I saw a man coming towards me with a Springer Spaniel whose hair was like an afro. Hmm. And he looked neglected, and he had it on the lead, usually a sure sign if somebody's going to lead it, it's there for a reason. And he said, what's that green thing you're carrying in your hand? And I said, well, it's a dummy. It's a gun dog dummy. They find it, retrieve it. And he said, oh, yes. He said, I suppose it occupies their mind. No, it doesn't. It's their <laughs> life force. Yes. That's how important it is. Uh, and that's where we make the big mistake, I think. We try and do things to amuse our dog without ever understanding what actually motivates it, what drives it, what yeah. his life force is. Mm. Whew, yeah. Carried away with that one, didn't <laughs> I? But you're right, because, you know, we, not, not us now, but as, as, a, as a race, as humans, we have spent years and, and centuries in some cases creating a breed and a, and a little mind in, in that dog that wants to do a particular thing. And now yeah. we just go, oh, that looks nice. I'll have that dog. And we don't enough. There's not enough um, focus given to, to looking at what, as you say, what will that dog want to do? What will that dog be happy doing? And, you know, the, well, the one that sort of always breaks my heart a bit is, is the Dachshunds because they're not an armpit dog. There are dogs. I mean, our, our star, our Bichon, loved to cuddle. But she, she still wasn't an armpit dog. She, she didn't want to be carried. She wanted to be down on the floor. There was a lot of terrier in her, and she wanted to pick things up and shake them and explore them, and she thought she was a big dog. And, but with dachshunds, that always makes me think, oh, you poor thing, because, you know, they, again, they think they're a big, rugged dog, and, that, you know, the scenting thing, and, you know, they, they were feisty. They, they were bred to go after badgers, and we, we don't look at that. We just go, yeah, that fit under my arm very well. I think I'll, I'll go with that. And you just think, oh, think about the dog. Yeah. Exactly that. I've got a lady, uh, I have to say a lady friend, a friend who is a lady, um, who has three, four, five, no, five rough-coated Dachshunds. Hmm. And she brought two of them, I think, to the last seminar, and they were motivated by a sort of mock hunting game, mm. yeah. um, where the food became the thing they were hunting, so they didn't actually bite anything. And short distances... Um, I was working it out on having watched Jack Russell's work. Jack Russell's like sprints, turn fast, catch a rat, turn fast, catch another one, etc., etc. Yeah. So he tried to make the course very much like that. And it was as though somebody had switched their light on. Mm. They were suddenly 100% with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you weren't saying, 
um, I want you to do this. They were saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, let's do it, let's do it. So the journey is an easy one. The training journey is an easy one because the dog's on your side. The dog's saying, yes, I love doing this, I love doing this. Equally, if you put um, Wag on uh, a lead and try and do anything that looks like obedience, he's the worst dog in the world. Mm. Absolutely terrible yeah. at yeah. finding things. And my daughter was looking through her files this morning Say she's looking for um, a particular piece of paper, change of address leaflet or something. Hmm. And I said, oh, I didn't say, I was about to say, let Wag find it for you. <laughs> no, because he does for me. Yeah, yeah. If I've lost a petrol receipt, for instance, hmm. from um, Waitrose, I get another petrol receipt, show him, let him smell it, and he usually finds it. Wow. The other one. Yeah. yeah. Which I've dropped under the desk or, you know. Yeah. Just folded and fallen into a crack, that kind of thing. But he usually finds it from. Yeah. Uh, he finds my keys yeah. on my phone. <laughs> you know, wonderful. So yeah. we don't need a, a, an app that finds phones. I've got a dog that finds phones. Yeah, yeah. He's a handy dog to have around. <laughs> oh, he's a lovely dog. He's, um, he's kind of casual uh, and has got a silent language. I think he's about 10 now, and I think he's got a bit of arthritis. Yeah. So when he's feeling really good, he jumps in the back of the car. If he isn't, he looks at me. Mm. And the look just says, please lift me into the back of the car, or please yeah. lift me out. Um, so he's an adorable dog. Um, I'm talking about him with his gun dog expertise, but actually his loving expertise is enormous. Uh, yeah. He's good. Yeah. But I can see in him that the first person to train him, whoever trained him to the gun, was an excellent trainer. Mm. Um not only knew what he was doing, but was kind, considerate, knew how to motivate him. Mm. Then he's lived with people who know nothing at all about dogs, and that's where the frustration and the pains come from. Mm. So we had to get, and I still have this look. Um, if I raise my hand uh, to pick up something, he still flinches. Oh. Not as much as he used to. Yeah. So yeah. I know people have hit him. Mm. So sad, um, isn't it? It's, it's just sad, sad. Mm. Do you, I mean, to, going back to, to Italy, where you've sort of um, been received with open arms, if you like, do, do you think that they are sort of motivated, I mean, the Italians are motivated to, to seek help, if you like, to, to seek training help? Do you think that's just a cultural thing? Because we are quite, I always think, you know, we're very lucky with our weather in Britain, because if we had weather that demolished houses if we had tornadoes and things like that we'd just go oh that looks bad doesn't it yes and we'd just walk around it and step over rubble we wouldn't rebuild and and if you know, people can disagree with me but that's my my opinion i think we're quite laid back we're not very proactive we just accept what happens and we moan about it but we don't actually have much get up and go to go and do something about it whereas i think on the uh, continent uh, go on no, no no i just have a theory about the, oh, the yeah. english uh, mm. the british mm. the british um, because so many breeds come from England, because our history is so wrapped up with dogs, and because we're known as a dog-loving nation, yes, I think we believe our own propaganda and say <laughs> to ourselves, well, that's enough. You know, I come from a nation of dog lovers. I don't need to, to learn. I know it. Um, it's inherent in me. It's an yeah. instinctive thing, and I know it. Um, recently, the Italians started playing rugby, and whenever they play one of the big nations, they inevitably lose. Mm. But I've noticed one thing. Over the last seven years, the amount they lose by is getting less and less and less and less. Mm. 
And I said to some of my Welsh friends, watch the Italians, because one fine day they're going to beat you hands down. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're very laid-back people. They're very, they're, they are strange people. They're very laid-back, very, very family-orientated, mm. but keen to learn. There's a, a huge desire in, in Italian to learn how to do something better than they're doing it. And equally, I'd say, in the English, from what I've seen, the people I meet on walks when I'm out with the dogs, there's um, an overconfident belief mm. that they know. Yes, yeah. Uh, without the virtue of study or the work entailed or anything, they know. Yeah, yeah. And you, you notice when people say to you, for instance, at the airport in this country, what do you do for a living, you know, if you're being questioned? Um, I'm a dog trainer, oh, yeah. Uh, next question, so, 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 so. Initially, they'll say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a dog trainer. That means an hour and a half conversation <laughs> about dog training. Mm. Um, there's something in the Italians that I admire, which is a really strong desire to improve their knowledge about whatever it is they're doing. Um, I, 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 when it comes to sheep dogs, they do it all wrong. Mm. Um, absolutely wrong um, because sheep in Italy because the grass isn't so good as it is here smaller flocks can be sustained um, they're always searching for food so if the shepherd's got food they'll follow him anywhere so that's mm. how they do it in this country mm. we've got huge amounts of sheep food everywhere the last thing the sheep are interested in is the shepherd and his dog so the shepherd's got to work really hard to bring the sheep back mm because they're not halfway there to doing it themselves through the need of food anyway. Um, they're reluctant, funnily enough, to learn that. If you say there's a huge cultural difference in explaining exactly why, it takes maybe two seminars before they're on your side. Mm. But the minute you start talking about training a dog for whatever, whatever purpose, my word, they pay attention. Mm. A huge difference. I did... Um, a talk maybe 10 miles from here um, after the first book had been published. I think 100 people came. None of them took notes. Mm. None of them took notes. And I dare say 95% of them forgot everything they'd been told half an hour afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. The Italians come in much, much bigger numbers and everyone's got a clipboard or a notebook. Mm. And they write and draw pictures in them for the whole of the weekend. And often I say, can I see your book? And it's full of just about every observation in the world. Yeah. And what you said, virtually word for word. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So there's this, can't explain it, can't define it, this willingness, this keenness to learn. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which must be wonderful from your point of view. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it is wonderful. Um I've got to go and do a conference for um, a group called APNEC, which is um, a scientific committee on the code and conduct of people who train animals mm. or work with animals. And, oh, by my word, it's taken seriously, and it's looked into in depth. Uh, and that's the nice thing. If you write a book in England for the English, you write it in kind of uh, chatty, simplified terms. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the English won't like me after this, but I don't care because it's true. <laughs> um, Italians, you can go into as much detail as you want. 
They won't sit there yawning and say, oh, this is boring. They'll learn. They'll learn. And they'll repeat it to you. Six years after they read the book, they'll tell you what it said. Yeah. So I'm, I'm mightily impressed with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you found them, and I, I glad they dis- I'm glad they discovered you as well. You're never a prophet in your own land, it says in the Bible. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> well, at least it gets you, you get to travel, and you get to have some nice weather from it, so it's not too bad. <laughs> oh, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Some, some heroic person's got to get out there. Yes. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, lovely, very nice. Um, beautiful places, good food, nice company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but the best thing of all of the all of the Italian scene is this willingness to learn, mm. this yeah. attention to you know, or, and the willingness to argue too, mm. which is good. Which yeah. Is good. Yeah. Well, if you're arguing, you're questioning, aren't you? You're not just sitting there going, yeah, okay. You're actually thinking, well, hang on, what about this? What about that? Which is great if you engage someone and get them thinking. Fantastic. Brilliant. Yes, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, wherever people are from if they're listening to this um, if you want to learn more if you want to engage if you want to argue um, where, where can they find out more about you online Graham? Oh if they um, if you put Graham Sims books you get a fair response if you put Libri D L-I-B-R-I mm-hmm. separate word D D-I mm-hmm. Graham Sims you get volumes um, the English have, have successfully made me anonymous, <laughs> and the Italians have done the opposite. Yes, yeah. Well, which is very nice for me, because I can live privately at home and uh, publicly in Italy, which is yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Good on the Italians, I say. That's um, good on them. Yeah. Grazie mille. Sorry, <laughs> say it again. Grazie mille. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I won't attempt the accent. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No. Um, well, thank you ever so much, Graham. It's always a delight to talk to you. And um, as I said, I've loved reading your books because it's always it's informative. But it's I, I'm one of those English who like that chatty style. So. <laughs> yes, I ought to just add a proviso. Yes. I'm talking about some English, of course. Yes, well, absolutely. You know, I'm just thinking when I say, oh, we haven't got to get up and go. In, um, you know, in the main, we haven't. Obviously, there's some of us that have, but uh, I don't mean me. I, I mean some England. When I say us, I just mean English people. I don't mean me. Um, but anyway, thank you ever so much, Graham, and um, and the best of luck with the, with your books everywhere, but particularly in Italy, if they love you there. Thank you very much indeed, Julie. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to Graham, and he's taught me a lot over the years, in person and via his books. I think it's fantastic that the Italians have taken Graham to their hearts. But it's a pity that Britain has so far missed out on such an insightful and wise trainer. If you'd like to learn more about Graham, there's a link to his Graham Sims Method website on the Dogcast Radio site, as well as links to the three other Dogcast Radio shows that Graham has featured in. Many thanks to Graham for taking the time to talk to me, and I wish him the very best of fortune, and I hope other countries follow Italy's example. Until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. 
By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Where do dogs go when their tails fall off? The retail store.